in John's day. Uh, they included brands on animals, seals stamped on papers. Uh, the same word for mark also described the image of a ruler stamped on a coin. Uh, so really no mark brand or stamp was used on people in John's day, which supports the belief that the mark is actually in the future, hasn't happened yet. And so keep that in mind. A mark shows ownership. You recall that God put a mark on the 144,000 because they belong to him, Revelation 7.3. In contrast, and we're going to go through a lot of contrast tonight, but in contrast, the Antichrist wants a mark on all those who belong to him. The mark of the Antichrist shows those who are loyal to him. Now, in the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist will not allow people to buy or sell without the mark. And so it's going to be really tough times uh, trying to survive in those days for those that uh, maybe have just recently come to Christ or, or maybe uh, dug out an old sermon to hear from somebody on the Internet. And it's like, okay, don't receive that, whatever you do. And, and so it's going to be difficult times in those days. Now, uh, throughout history, people have tried to interpret the mark of the beast. Uh, I'm just going to look at two basic kinds of interpretation of, of the mark. First of all, people try to calculate the number. In other words, they try to discover the name that the number represents. Um, who, in, your, in your studying, in your you know, thinking about this or, or hearing other, even other te teachers and so, uh, who have you heard, uh, yeah, wrote my notes here, who have you heard was or is the Antichrist? Who have people associated even in history? Uh, who the, okay, yeah, Hitler, the Pope, what? Elvis? Okay. He's left the building. All right. A lot of, what? Obama. Okay. A lot of people have tried to, you know, calculate that. I've even heard years ago, I forgot which teacher it was, uh, Henry Kissinger, because the way his name lined up in the, in the letters in his name, whatever. And, and uh, um, I can tell you all the above are, are not that person. All right. Are not the Antichrist. Um, but basically what they do is um, they use the uh, numbers to, to try to figure out, well, the name is this, and this, you know, uh, this letter equals this number, and they add them all up. For example, uh, today we use the Aramaic numerals of 0 uh, and 1 through 9. Uh, keep in mind that these numbers didn't become popular until the 10th century, all right? And so in Bible days, people did not use the uh, Arabic numerals, they spelled out the number. As time went by, they started using letters of the Greek alphabet to represent numbers. And uh, um, for example, the letter A, alpha, would be one, uh, beta would be two. You go on down, uh, kappa is 20, and, and things of that nature. And they try to, and I have a chart here, but you can look at the capital letter, small letter, numeric value, English letter, whatever, and they try to do that. Now, many have tried to calculate the name of the Antichrist. Irenaeus was a well-known Bible teacher. He lived about 100 years after John received this revelation. And uh, uh, he was not sure about the mystery of the mark. Uh, the, the 18 centuries of guesses after him have not brought us any closer to who that might be. But um, Irenaeus had this idea uh, that the mark might be, and I'm just going to spell it out for you, it's L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S. Latinos. I don't know. Anyway, it's a Greek word that means the Roman kingdom. And uh, basically, if you take that English letter L is 30 plus A is 1 plus T is 300 plus E is 5 plus I is 10, the numeric value to those letters, uh, and N is 50, O is 70, S is 200, you add those numbers all up, it is 666, all right? Um, but I said all that um, because people... Uh, keep on guessing. Each generation tries to figure this out. Uh, and if, and this, is, this is the negative of all this. If a name does not work in the Greek, then they try it in the Hebrew, all right, or Latin. And if it does not give the right total, they'll add a title, you know, Mr., M-R, is this me? So they do all kinds of crazy things. And, and my admonition here is that wastes a lot of time. We don't have to go there, all right? It's not necessary. I think we would do a lot better off if we simply spend time praying and meditating on God's Word and spending time in His presence, uh, doing good deeds or whatever, than trying to figure that out. So you have that numerical value there. The second uh, interpretation of the mark of the beast or Antichrist is probably easier to apply today. 
Uh, it focuses on the contrast between the numbers 6 and 7. Now, 6 is the number of man, correct? Um, God created man on the sixth day. God commanded man to rest after every six days of work. He allowed the Israelites to plant and reap a field for six years. A Hebrew could only be a slave for six years. Thus, six shows the, the limits of man. Uh, six is one short of seven. Seven is the number of completeness or perfection. Uh, several verses in Revelation link God with the number seven. We talked about that from the get-go. Um, the Antichrist builds a kingdom based on worldly wisdom. His number is 666. Now, some say, well, why are there three sixes in the beast number? Well, one, one commentator mentioned that each six represents a member of the satanic trinity. We talked about that last week a little bit. Thus, if God had a mark, God's, God's number would be 777 in that sense. And so basically, uh, that's a, maybe a little better way to look at it, but uh, um, always keep in mind that man's number is, is that of, of failure, 666, failure upon failure upon failure. His number is the trinity of imperfection. Uh, six is the highest digit that Satan can ever reach. Uh, he will always be short of perfection, even though he tries to take God's place. Um, one of the other thing that stands out to me is like, Satan knows the word better than you and I do. Hasn't he read this book? <laughs> you know, he does, you know, but yes, he has. He knows it, but it's like, okay, you're going through a lot of trouble here. And, uh, but, he, but bottom line is he wants to take as many people to hell uh, uh, with him as he can. So um, the number 666, bottom line is don't spend a lot of time on it. It's okay. Just don't, don't receive the mark. And I'm back in, well, is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? Uh, there's been, I mean, the, the pet implants, the little chip, microchip for your pet, your dog, cat, has been around for years. I know that I've read stuff like 30 years ago where, you know, the size of a grain of rice, you know, can be implanted underneath your skin. Uh, there's that kind of thing. Today we have our credit cards, that little, that little thing. They, they can read it. You can go get gas at Costco and take your credit card out and just lay it. You don't have to slide it or nothing. No sliding, no pushing it anymore. And just tapping it or just laying it there, and it picks that up. And uh, I saw a guy this past week, and I didn't see a guy. I read a story of a guy had a ring made with that little chip in his ring, so he didn't have to carry a wallet. You know, it's like, okay, um, whatever, whatever. All right. Um, bottom line is, uh, if you have kids, grandkids, and you're going to outlive them, or they're going to outlive you, but, but just basically tell them, don't receive the mark. You know, just don't go that direction. So that all being said... Let's jump into a big area, the seven bowls and the great harlot, and this is Revelation 13 and 14. I'm not going to take time to read 13. I did 13 and 17 last week, week before. We did Daniel 2, 7, and 8. But basically, uh, we, we may refer to Revelation 13 as the valley of the two beasts. Remember that out of the sea and, 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 and out of the earth. Likewise, we may refer to Revelation 15 and 16 as the valley of the seven bowls. This, uh, these seven final plagues will be terrible, but in between the valleys of the beast and the bowls, there are some mountains. In other words, there's some high and encouraging points. So basically, John doesn't spend all his time talking about the negative. He also goes back to the positive. Uh, he does not emphasize wrath and judgment so much that that believers become discouraged. Instead, he keeps reminding them of the final victory. And I think that's important for us today as well. We need to be reminded over and over again that, you know something, in the end, God wins, period. I mean, he wins big, <laughs> yeah, all right? And so uh, John, John does that too. John quickly moves between or beyond the valley of Revelation 13 to the mountains of Revelation 14. It's important to realize that John jumps back and forth in time, just like the Old Testament often does as well. Uh, but one of the things that stood out again to me is, I've been reading, 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 but over and over you're going to see, you know, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on part of the saints. If there was ever a time that there needs to be a call to the body of Christ for perseverance, it is today. I mean, we need to persevere, we need to keep on pressing in, and to be faithful, no matter what, being faithful unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that all being said, 
I want to read Revelation 14 first of all, and then we'll talk about the 144,000 again on Mount Zion, etc. So, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So just as the beast knows those who belong to him, God knows those who belong to God. And so, uh, written on their foreheads, verse 2, And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song. I love this. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. Uh, they, they kept themselves pure. They, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. There's no deceit, and they were blameless. Uh, and then, then it goes on in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel, verse 8, followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Verse 9, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured at full strength into the cup of his wrath. He'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. There it is. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Also, repeating from chapter 13, looking for the verse, verse number 10. So 13, 10, and then 14, 12, saying basically the same thing. Patient endurance is needed. Uh, being faithful to Jesus. Uh, verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven uh, say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and for their deeds, and the, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me uh, was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then Another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had a sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth, of the earth's uh, vine, because its grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside of the city, or outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 1, stadia. All right, so let's begin to look then at chapter 14 and, uh, and talk about, first of all, the 144,000 on Mount Zion. Then we'll talk about the three angels and then the two harvest judgments, first of all. Um, there are at least two different uh, opinions on the 144,000. Some think this is a new group that John has never mentioned, 
It's hard to be certain, but there are three reasons why we think it's the same 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. First of all, number one, John took time to explain the 144,000 when he mentioned them back in Revelation chapter 7. It is natural for us to think that this is the group he has already introduced to us. If this were a new group, uh, we would probably expect him to introduce it as a new group, but he refers to them as if we already knew who he was talking about, number one. Second, this 144,000 already has the seal of God on their foreheads, Revelation 14.1. It is likely that this, this is though, these are those that John told us were sealed earlier, back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. Third, the number of, of uh, 144,000 in Revelation 14.1 shows that none of the group has been lost. I like that. In other words, God knows how to keep those who belong to Him. All right, so once again, there's that part. Now, it's not important for us to, to be sure about who the 144,000 are uh, because 2 Timothy 2.19 says the Lord knows those who are His. God knows. However, there are at least four important truths we should know about this group, and I have listed out there for you. Number one, the 144,000 of Revelation 14 have the name of God and the Lamb in their foreheads or on their foreheads. And so, uh, first of all, uh, this shows they belong to God. In contrast now, the worldly people of Revelation 13 receive a mark on their forehead or on their hand, their right hand. This mark or number of the, is the, mark, this, this mark is the name or number of the beast. Uh, this mark shows that these people belong to the beast. Now, the judgment is going to be very easy for God, and I say that because those who belong to the devil wear his mark or brand, and those who belong to God wear God's mark or God's seal. Remember that all true believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit, back to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 13 and 4, verse 30. On judgment day, the seals on people will show who they belong to. The seals will uh, be on people, so you better have God's seal on you is what I'm saying, all right? Um, uh, God, Satan, and humans brand what belongs to them, number one. Number two, the 144,000 stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. In contrast, Satan stands on the sand. Back to Revelation 13:1, also Matthew 7. Mount Zion is a symbol of deliverance. Uh, Joel chapter 2, 32. John's vision here is of a heavenly Mount Zion. Uh, this gives us a picture of future victory. Uh, the Antichrist on the sand will roar and devour for a short time, but the Lamb, the Lamb will stand as a, the eternal victor on a mountain or stone. And so once again, the kingdom of the beast is a kingdom built on sand or on sand. It's unstable, it's shaky compared to the kingdom of the Lamb, which is uh, a rock. Now, what is sand? Sand is simply the disintegration of rock, a part of, a piece of, but not the whole. Once again, the number six will never raise up to be the number seven. It will always be imperfect in that sense. And so they, they, they stand on Mount Zion with the lamb. So we have that contrast versus the beast on the sand versus the Mount Zion rock illustration. Number three, the 144,000 sing a unique song of redemption. Now, the Bible says that no one else can learn this song. Why is that? Anyone? Why can no one else learn that song they're singing? Not redeemed or what else? When a person sings a song, um, what often makes it powerful is the experience that person had. You know, they're writing from a hard experience or something from life that's part of them. Uh, but the Bible says the song, no one else can learn it. The song is united with things that happen. There are some things that a person can only learn through experience. In other words, Solomon can never sing the songs of David. He can learn the melodies, he can learn the words, but he can never fully learn the songs because some songs are more than a melody or a word. Some songs 
are sung because of the experience of the singer. Now, sinners might sing Amazing Grace, but they will never really know the song until they know the Savior. All right? And so likewise, which of us can really learn to sing the song Noah sings about the flood? We weren't there, so it's not going to mean as much to us. So they have their own songs. Now, they're, they're a contrast. I, I put in my notes here is, is the saints sing a new song. Contrast that with the sinners who are forced to worship the image of the beast. All right? A contrast, once again. And so number four, then, the fourth thing, the 144,000 are, I just put sexually pure. And now uh, keep, keep this in context of what it, what it says here. It's important to interpret the verse in its context that uh, sexual relationships can either be holy or unholy. In the days of the apostles, uh, keep in mind there were many pagan temples with harlots. Unholy sex with a harlot was part of the religion of these temples. Now Paul wrote, and we'll get to this in our study on Sunday mornings coming up, but Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this problem, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, sexual sins were a big problem for some of John's readers as well. But the 144,000 did not defile themselves with these evil temptations, uh, with the temple prostitutes and such. Uh, they were not defiled. Uh, no lie was found in them. In other words, they were truthful. They were not uh, deceptive or de uh, deceived, whatever. There was no deceit found in them. They were blameless. They were holy. And so basically, uh, they were set apart. Now, what is the key then for you and I to remain pure before the Lord? It says here in verse 4, they followed the Lamb wherever He goes. The key for you and I being pure before God and remaining pure before God is to keep on following the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, a sermon within the context of that, but basically uh, they were pure, all right? Uh, separated from the world, sanctified. We're going to be talking about this for the church in Corinth this coming Sunday. Uh, as I mentioned uh, last Sunday, we were starting a new series. And uh, interesting that uh, Corinth was, they had a lot of problems. Let's put it that way. The church, in, the church in Corinth, a lot of problems. And yet in chapter 1, uh, Paul comes along and says, you know, to those who are holy, sanctified, set apart. Uh, and so saints, as the King James, I think, says. But basically, even though they had a lot of problems, uh, God was still working in them. And uh, uh, everything might not be realized yet, but God's hand was upon them, and Paul calls them saints and holy, even though on the outside, probably not quite there yet, you know. But we'll talk about that Sunday. Anyway, so we have the 144,000 at Mount Zion. Let's talk about the three angels, verses 6 through 13. The messages of the three angels are also like mountains between the valleys of the beast and the bulls. Um, basically encouraging the readers. The first is this. The first angel, number one, preaches the gospel. Now, Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony for all. Then the end will come. And I've never saw that before in context of right here, uh, of, of the angel preaching the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and basically what's happening here is God's doing everything he can to, to save people. He's doing everything he can to rescue sinners from sin and to bring, get them to heaven, to be with him. And so basically here, um, the gospel is going to be preached. And it says in verse 6, I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel to preach, to proclaim to those who live on earth. Now, usually God uses humans, you and I, to preach and to share the gospel. But at the darkest hour on earth, God sends an angel to proclaim and preach the good news. Now, this is the same good news that the apostles preached. There's only one gospel, and uh, truly this is one of the highest mountaintops in Revelation, But because even during this time, there's going to be those who are hearing the gospel from the angel midair, wherever that is, or however that looks, there's going to be an angel preaching the gospel, uh, calling people to repentance. I mean, Jesus came. What was the message he preached? He preached repentance. And so, I'll just say it this way, any preacher worth his or her salt needs to preach repentance. 
all right, and, 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 and people getting right with God. And so many are going to hear the message for the first time in the tribulation. God is still seeking people who will turn to him. Now, why does God use an angel to preach? Uh, there could be several reasons. First of all, we believe the church is already in heaven. Well, if we're in heaven, we're not preaching the gospel kind of thing. Number one. Number two, the world is in chaos. I mean, half of the world has not yet heard the gospel. Two, the two witnesses and the 144,000 served the Lamb. Those saved in the tribulation you know, will witness to others. But the world's a mess at this time, okay? And it's even now, but it's getting worse. But number three, uh, the task is great and the time is short. Once again, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so other questions I have then is, you know, God sends this angel to preach, but how does he do it? How does one angel preach to every tribe, tongue, nation, language, group, whatever? I don't know. Does he have other angels under his authority? I don't know. Is the preaching in various languages for them to understand? Once again, we can be sure that God has all kinds of good answers for these questions that we don't know yet and might not ever know. But, but meanwhile, we rejoice that God gives people, mankind, one more chance to repent. One more time, one more time. I mean, God's net is open. He wants to bring in the fish. He wants to bring in the harvest. And God's doing all he can to make sure people hear and understand so they will be without excuse. All will hear. All will hear. Matthew 24, 14. And uh, so number one. Number two, the second angel announces the fall of Babylon. This is Revelation uh, 14, 8. Uh, you recall that Babylon was the great capital of, of Nebuchadnezzar. He conquered Judah in 586 B.C. He carried Daniel and others into captivity, 2 Kings 25. Um, but Babylon was once the capital of the enemy of, Israel's, of Israel. In Revelation, Babylon represents the city of Rome. Uh, some, uh, Rome represents the opposite of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is known for Christ. Rome is known for the Antichrist. All the Roman emperors, like the Domitian, ruled from Rome. John compares the influence of Rome to the influence of wine. When people get drunk, they often do stupid and foolish things. Nations under the influence of Rome committed spiritual adultery. Uh, now, we're going to study this uh, thoroughly as we get chapter 18. But basically, John announces the fall here uh, by the angel to encourage believers. Once again, uh, God, God is in control. Keep, keeping that thought in mind as well as we walk through this. The third angel emphasizes the need to remain faithful to Jesus. Uh, note once again the contrast between, between Rome's wine and God's wine. Those who drank Rome's wine, as I said, committed spiritual adultery, but God is going to force some to drink another wine, and that is the wine of God's wrath. Also keep in mind that God's wrath is not temporary. The lake of fire is eternal. It's forever and ever. Revelation 14, 11. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Once again, the contrast. I said I was gonna, there's lots of contrast here. The contrast in those who follow Christ and those who follow the Antichrist. Those who take the mark of the beast go to the lake of fire. There is no rest there, all right? It's forever and ever, as I just read. But those who die for Christ go to heaven. These rest from their work, verse 13, Revelation 14. So John uses that contrast as well to encourage believers, be patient. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And so we have those contrasts as well. Now let's go on and talk about the two harvest judgments, Revelation 14, 14 through 20. The first one is, uh, the first picture is of a grain harvest. Now most, most biblical teachers, commentators believe and think that the one like the Son of Man is Jesus Christ, Revelation 14, 14. It was the Lamb who started the process of judgment, you recall, by opening the seals on the scroll that had writing on both sides. Here, the lamb swings a sickle and reaps the ripe grain of the earth. 
Now, the vision is very brief, and teachers do not agree on its meaning, but it seems to be a summary of coming judgment in, in the context of it all. As grain in a field is cut down, Jesus will cut down the wicked. Did you catch that? He will cut down the wicked. So the first picture is of a grain harvest. The second one is of a grape harvest. The, the grape harvest speaks of judgment. Grapes trampled in the wine press. Basically what John is doing here in chapter 14, we'll cover this more later, but John is describing the battle of Armageddon. All right? Um, John compares Armageddon to a giant wine press as Jesus tramples the nations, blood flows out. Um, if you've got, got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63 is, is kind of, uh, is, is, ties in right here. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It speaks of the, the, the Lord's Day of Vengeance. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra. He is he who is, is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, my to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden, verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spat, spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now, um, this explains why Christ will return in a robe dipped in blood. And we'll see, we'll see that more in Revelation 19, verse 13, as we study that. But John is simply mentioning this, again, to encourage believers to persevere. In other words, God has this. What God's going to do is okay. I mean, this is, his judgments are just. You know, he has a right to do what he wants to do. And, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But, but basically, we have then the harvest judgments that we have then in chapter 14. Now, let's move on and talk about the seven bowls of God's wrath. I'm going to read Revelation 15 and 16. 15 is pretty short, only eight verses. 16 is a little longer. All right, verse or chapter 15, I saw in heaven another, another sign, a great, great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Going on to verse our chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, 
and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. You recall that in the earlier judgments, the trumpet judgments and such, that just a third of, of the waters, but now it's all, it's all the sea creatures. Think of the nastiness of that. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the, on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. Now think of this. Just pause right there. The sun's scorching people with fire. People are already covered with these sores and these boils. If you've ever had that kind of thing happen and then the sun hits it, it's worse. Years ago, and this is nothing to compare what's going to happen here, but years ago, I got too much sun and, and you get blisters, and it's really very, very sore. And uh, you, you want to stay out of the sun because any more sun beating down on your blisters, your soreness, your sunburn or whatever, it hurts more. And so think how this is going to compound, the pain, the agony, the torture. All right. Uh, the sun scorched people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they, here it is, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Wow. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because their pain, of their pains and their sores. But here it is again. They refused to repent of what they had done. Number, the sixth angel, number, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. I was watching a video, an eight-minute video yesterday about this, and right now, and this is not the judgment of God, the, 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 the bowl of God's wrath, but the Euphrates River is drying up, and it's going to affect hundreds of thousands and millions of people as you get into Syria, Turkey, Iran. I mean, look, look this up on the Internet, and you can see just because they've had, la like, like, like Arizona before this, this winter, but lack of rain, severe drought, and I even saw like a four-minute video of a farmer in that area. I think it was in Iran. And he, he had a, a citrus, uh, not a citrus, he had a grove. And I'm, I forgot what fruit or nut he was growing. But the Euphrates used to water this. And that, that source is all dried up. And he says, now I can't even water my trees. I can't even water my crops. And now they have to walk which was just like from me to the back of the church here, that close. Now they have to walk four miles just to get water to drink. Well, this is going to affect a lot of people. And, I, and so that is starting to dry up now, but it's going to, when God's judges, it's going to be much more than what it is now. And it's going to be dry, allowing then other nations to come. Because you think of a river, a river is a barrier. And, and so it's a barrier between states, the Mississippi, uh, between nations, that kind of thing as well. And so when that's removed, that's dried up, all of a sudden, here's a dried up riverbed that becomes a highway for warmongers, basically. And so that's going to happen as well in this bowl of judgment. Uh, so the, the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits <clears throat> that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. In other words, they're going to perform these miraculous signs and such just to convince these kings, these leader, world leaders of, of, of hey, you know, come be part of this. All of this is God orchestrating what God's going to do. I mean, the, Satan might think he's all high and mighty and, and has it all under control and, and whatever, but 
God's, God's orchestrating all this, all right? Be, be assured of that. Um, and then in the middle of all that, behold, Jesus speaking. If you have a red print edition of the Bible, behold, I come like a thief. So a thief comes and no one knows they come for the most part. I mean, a good thief, to, make a, to be a good thief means you're, gonna, you're going to go under stealth, you know, entrance, whatever. You're going to get what you want. You're going to break in. You're going to enter, whatever. And years ago, when I first came here, 20-some years ago, there was a, they called him the rock burglar. And it was in Scottsdale, and he would go through, he'd take a rock, he'd break a window in the bathroom because the bathroom windows, for the most part, don't have an alarm thing on it because the big bathroom windows aren't, are, don't open. And so they don't put an, uh, an alarm on it. So this guy, they finally caught him after years. But he would take a rock, break the bathroom window, break in, steal jewelry, whatever, go out that window. And they called him the Scott Still Rock Burglar. Look it up on the Internet. might be there yet. But that was like 20-some years ago when I first came here. But uh, a thief. I come like a thief, Jesus says. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. Check this out. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. It'll be the most devastating earthquake earth has experienced. The great city split into three parts, and the city of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Verse 20, every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. Think about that. Every island fled away. Those that are living in Hawaii, sorry, you might want to sell your nice condo or whatever in Hawaii. Or those who live in the mountains, all right? Every island fled away. The mountains could not be found. From the sky, he, this is crazy. From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds. More accurately, 75 pounds, but 75 or 100, they're, they're still big. All right, you don't want one of these falling on you, and uh, and so the the NIV's off by 25 pounds. I just wrote 75 in my margin, about 100 pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. I don't know about you. I've gotten peppered out riding quad in the forest before with hailstones the size of marbles. That ain't fun. I mean, this has been the year that you, Elvin and Jan, that you went to Sholo to pick up your vacuum was the year I was out in the forest where it rained like three inches in an hour. You were in town. You were getting gas in Overguard. And I remember being out there with the guys, and it was lightning. It was raining so hard, and uh, uh, hail was hitting. And I'm on a quad. They're in UTVs with a roof on it. Not much protection, but a little protection. I'm on a quad getting peppered. Like, let's go under the trees because it'll hurt less. Okay, we go under the trees. Lightning's coming. This is not a good place to be when it's lightning out. And that's just a little marble-sized hailstone. Think of a 75-pound chunk of ice. Boom. You know, you're flattened. You're flattened. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be devastating. All right, so said all that. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about the seven bowls of God's wrath from this. And uh, I have for you this sheet here, the blue sheet. And look at figure 11.4, and you can see the similarity in the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, how they affect the trumpets, the land, the sea, the rivers, the heavens, mankind. And, uh, and you can see the similarities in that, and then it gives you cross-references for that. Uh, but the judgments of the trumpets and the bowls, keep this in mind because God is a God of order. There's a pattern here. The first trumpet and the first bowl are judgments on the land. The second trumpet and the second bowl are judgments on the sea. And basically, you know, this, this, this little chart summarizes the complete pattern of the, of the trumpet and bowl judgments. Now, uh, Revelation 15 and 16 
puts a lot together in the picture that John paints for us. John includes in these two chapters praising and cursing, plagues and blessing. John paints this picture at the end of the age, but his picture is much like that of the Exodus. And, and so let's look at four truths that talk about that, and that is on figure 11.6 on that blue sheet. And so basically, number one, A, I should say, the opportunity to repent is passing away. You'll recall that in the days of Moses, Pharaoh was the ruler. Recall that Egypt was the first head of the beast with seven heads. Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, rebelled against God. Therefore, God poured out judgment on the kingdom of Egypt. Now, the final head of the beast is ruled by the Antichrist. But again, God will pour out judgments, plagues of judgments. And so once again, as you look at figure 11.6, you can see then the similarities between the seven bowls then of judgment in Revelation that I just read to you versus the plagues of Egypt that you can read about in the book of Exodus. Now, um, God's going to do that. The trumpet plagues caused some to repent. In our pleasure, God whispers to us, but in our pain, he shouts to us. Still, even though God's doing this, there's going to be many that refuse to hear God during the trumpet judgments. The opportunity to repent lessens as a person refuses to listen. The plagues of Egypt made Pharaoh his heart harder. Likewise, the plagues of Revelation will also harden men's hearts. All right? And I dealt with that a little bit, put a little post on Facebook on that this morning. Uh, the first thing. The second thing is, B, the judgment of God is certain. All right? It's certain. Uh, why today don't people want to hear about judgment in hell? Just an open-ended question. They have to change their way of living. Anyone else? Why don't people today want to hear about judgment or hell? They don't believe in it, all right? One sinner said this, if I were God, I would do away with judgment and hell. But honestly, that's a form of idolatry. We, we, mankind, we, mankind keeps on trying to make God in our, in our image, in man's image. And uh, it does not matter what a sinner would do if he or she were God. That will never happen. What matters is what God will do. And so really, sinners should ask the question, what would I do if I were on my way to hell? And the answer we know is repent. Get right with God. You see, the world is on a collision course with God. It's, 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 gonna, it's, gonna, it's about to explode. From the beginning... Satan has lied about the judgment. He promised Eve that God would not judge her. You will, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, Genesis 3, 4. But the judgment of God is as certain as the judgment of Egypt. Jesus, as I said earlier, talked more about judgment and hell than any other person in Scripture did. Each person has an appointment with God. And so, therefore, we need to be thankful for pastors and or preachers, evangelists, that tell us, thus saith the Lord. God is a good God, but he's also a, a judge. You know, I always say one day, this is Steve Hill, one day a, a loving Savior will be a severe judge. It is certain. It is certain. And so that's going to happen. C, the judgment of God is just. Now, on earth, justice is uncertain. Um, the courts might be off or tainted. The, the, judge, the, the judge sitting on the court might be uh, crooked. Uh, sometimes people don't get caught. Others get caught, but they pay bribes. Lawyers may guide people away from the truth. Witnesses may be murdered. Not all judges, as I said, are honest. Uh, well, the Roman rulers were not, were not fair as well. Even an honest judge can make a mistake. And so, therefore, there is no certainty of justice on earth. But no one can deceive or bribe God. God knows us, 
and he judges us as we really are. The king of the ages is just and true in all his ways. Revelation 15, verse 3. He alone is holy and right and righteous. Revelation 15, verse 4. And so the day is coming when our just judge will hand out his justice. He will give sinners exactly what their sin is due. He will punish mankind for not repenting and getting right with God. The judgment of God is just. Even the, the, the voice from heaven, you know, your, your judgments, uh, you are just in these judgments. You who are and were the Holy One. I mean, you have a right to do this. He is God and really, we have no say in the matter except, Lord, have mercy on me. I repent of my sin. C, D, the one who crosses the sea. And I'll close with this one. The, the one who crosses the sea will sing. And I saw what seemed or looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, after the plagues in Egypt, the children of Israel came to the Red Sea. This Red Sea separated them from the Promised Land, but God enabled them miraculously to cross, to cross it. Then, beside the sea, they, saw, they sang the victorious song of Moses. See, God always makes a way. God always makes a way. Even with every temptation, he makes a way to pass through it, and the tambourine is just beyond the temptation. You recall that Deborah and the people sang after they defeated their enemies, Judges chapter 5. Miriam led the women in a celebration. They danced to the Lord on the far side of the Red Sea. They rejoiced as they sang the song of Moses. Those who overcome the beast will sing a song of victory. They will celebrate beside the sea of glass and fire. There they will sing the song of Moses, it says, and the Lamb. Now, why is Moses mentioned? Because Moses is a type of Christ. John also mentions Moses because the story of Revelation is a lot like the story of Egypt. Each generation must escape the bonds of sin each group of believers must trust in God to take them through the quote-unquote Red Sea, sea glass or whatever. And so they will sing. The ones who cross the sea will sing. Looking in the back side of that, I'm going to stop right there. My time is done. Didn't get through this as I didn't think I probably would, but I gave myself two weeks in this lesson. So take this outline with you for next week, but we'll talk about in Revelation chapter 17 as well as 18, the harlot on the beast who is the harlot. Why does John compare the city of the Antichrist to a harlot? And so we'll talk more about that next week. So if you haven't done so, read 17. We read it last week, but also chapter 18. We'll get into that more next week. All right? God bless you all. Thanks for being here. Uh, have a great evening in the Lord, a great week in the Lord this Sunday. Um, we're starting 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll go through that and more about that later. So God bless you all.